welcome to Season 2 of New Creation Conversations, a podcast devoted to helping followers of Jesus live more fully as reflections of the new creation. I'm Dr. Scott Daniels, and I've spent the last 30 years as a pastor and professor, with one foot in university and seminary settings, and the other squarely in the life of pastoral leadership in the local church. I've worked hard to keep these two worlds that have so much in common and have a great deal to learn from each other from getting too far apart. It isn't easy. So each week, I sit down and have a conversation with old friends and new friends who are doing great scholarly work and hear how their study and insights might inform not only the mission of the local church, but the life of the everyday follower of Jesus as well. I still have a lot to learn to be all that Christ wants me to be. So thanks for joining me on these weekly explorations as we receive the grace we need to live into the new creation together. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 64 of New Creation Conversations. I'm delighted to be joined in today's conversation by Dr. Susan Harris-Howell. Susan is professor of psychology at Campbellsville University in Kentucky, where she's taught for 28 years. She's an alum of Campbellsville and has both a master's degree and a doctorate in education with emphases in counseling and development from the University of Louisville. Susan recently wrote and published a book entitled Buried Talents, Overcoming Gendered Socialization to Answer God's Call, a book published by IVP Academic. Susan's book emerges out of a couple of decades of her research and teaching on gender and gender socialization. In the book, she argues that The small percentage of women in parish ministry is not just the result of theological or biblical interpretation problems, but it's also the result of a broad intersection of social formation and the implications that it has in in all of our lives and in, in our imaginations. The book's not just a fascinating analysis of how gendered socialization happens through childhood and adolescence and even into adulthood, but but it also offers helpful and practical ways for us to reflect the new creation in the ways that we relate to and encourage one another in our callings as both women and men. I found the book not only helpful for young women who are wrestling with God's call upon their lives, but also a really beneficial book for me as a church leader and as a parent and as a mentor to both young women and young men. It's a great book and an important conversation. So thanks for joining me for today's New Creation Conversation. Here's my conversation with Dr. Susan Howell. Well, I'm delighted to get to have a conversation today uh, with Dr. Susan Howell. Susan, really nice to meet you and congratulations on the relatively new book, Buried Talents. Thank you. Yeah. So tell folks a little bit about your faith journey. I was raised in a Christian family um, that went to fairly conservative churches, although my parents were were fairly open-minded. So even though I was raised to in the churches to believe that there was this narrow um, path that women should take, I am so thankful that I had parents that didn't always buy into that. Hmm. And then as I got older and when I went to a Baptist college and I still had actually some fairly narrow views about women and men and so on. And then I met the person who I'm now married to, and he amazingly was so much less restrictive toward women than I was. And so he would ask me, who are we to tell 
anyone, man or woman, that they shouldn't do what God's calling them to do. And so he made me start thinking about these things. And so from there, my journey has been into more of um, or a less restrictive mindset toward men and women and faith and so on. And that's where I come to this to this um, experience of gender and writing the book and so on. Huh. So the tradition you were raised in Christianly did not ordain women. No, did not. In fact, the women in the church that I grew up in, we weren't even allowed to ask a question, say at a business meeting. Mm. Uh, we were allowed to vote, but um, it was pretty restrictive pretty restrictive. Like I say, my parents didn't buy into all of it, which I think is partly (laughs) what mitigated, you know, but, but yeah. Sure. So talk a little bit then also about your, your scholarly journey. What, what led you into a degree in psychology, but also then even deeper into the, this interest in, in gender uh, specifically. Right. Well, whenever I went to college, I went to Campbellsville, at the time, Campbellsville College is now Campbellsville University, and that's where I'm on faculty. And when I went there, I took a psychology class that just it helped me to see the value, I guess, in a career helping people. And so I was really excited about that. And actually, I have to back up. It wasn't the psychology class so much that did that for me, but I took a sociology class that helped me to to think in terms of helping people. So I declared a major amazingly then in psychology, even Mm. though sociology had kind of opened my eyes to it. Anyway, I had thoughts of being a therapist. That was what I wanted to do. I wanted to help people live happier, fuller lives. And then when I got to graduate school in a psychology program, I had like practicum internship experiences and I liked it, but I didn't just love it. And I knew that I did want to help people. I wanted to study psychology. I wanted to be able to understand human behavior in depth. Um, But I wasn't sure that I wanted to do that as a therapist. And so I got some wonderful experience co-teaching a class and doing research with a professor. And I realized that that was really what my calling was. And so from there, I just went more academic and started teaching and doing research. And, and then from there, um, being able to do, you know, speaking engagements and writing and so on. Okay. Talk a little bit more about the, the seeds that led to or the process that led to the writing of Buried Talents. Okay. Whenever I, about, I guess, 15 or 20 years ago, I started teaching the gender studies course, actually with two other colleagues, we developed the course, we knew our students were not really understanding as much about the interaction between men and women as we felt that they should. So we three created this class, I taught it with them for one semester, hated Every minute, <laughs> I knew that it, it felt every day like going to class, like going to a war zone. I, I felt like the students were very much in opposition to what we were trying to teach them. 
And I told them, I told the colleagues that I did not want to teach this again, that if they wanted to teach it together, you know, divide it up 50-50, but I was out. I wasn't going to do it anymore. And then several years passed. One of those colleagues got a job somewhere else. The other colleague retired. And we had this gender studies class on the books. And they told me, the administration told me that somebody needed to teach it. <laughs> or we needed to get rid of it. And I was just about to tell them, okay, let's just take it out of the catalog. When providentially, I believe, two former students came through town individually, separately, met up with me over lunch, over coffee, and said, you know that gender studies class that we took years ago with you? That changed the way I think. It changed the way I see the opposite sex. And this is one man, one woman. Hmm. And for a teacher to be told that something they taught changed someone's life, that is honestly better than a raise. There is... <laughs> And I don't want the trustees of my institution to know that because I really would like a raise. <laughs> I I was just I couldn't I couldn't at that point discontinue the class. So I decided that if I were going to teach the class, I had to go in much more prepared than I had been last time. And so in the I guess year leading up to my teaching the class by myself the first time, I spent a year preparing. I researched, I read textbooks, I read articles, I prayed for myself, I prayed for the students who would be in the class, and from then on, I loved the class, and I think it was because I was much more prepared that time, and to be honest, I think I had a better attitude hmm. the, that time when I taught it. It is easy to be more gracious when you have the knowledge to prepare you to answer any questions without being defensive. Hmm. And so I think that it was probably my being prepared and my attitude changing. And then it became one of the, my favorite courses. So. Yeah. I, has, have the attitudes of students in a course like that changed over a decade and a half or so, however long you've been teaching? Yes, they have, actually. I find much less resistance now than there was at the time. Oh, and I think some of that is that times do change. They do change. But also, I think there are always, there's always one in every class that I can watch them as I'm lecturing, as we're having class discussions, and I can tell that they're not buying it. They have this narrow view and they don't want anybody to challenge it and they get upset if someone does. But what I have tried to do is realize that they are where they are for a reason. They have been taught these things for sometimes two decades before this class comes into their life. And I can't expect them to just throw out everything they've been taught. So I try to be non-defensive, try to present them with the facts, challenge them gently, sometimes not so gently. And, uh, and I, I have found that that helps a lot. It helps me, if nothing else. But I think it helps them, too, to realize that 
they don't have to be defensive, that they're there to learn. And so, yeah, I think that there are changes that I've seen in the student population now than 15, 20 years ago. And I don't know how much of that is due to the fact that I handle it differently or um, that with every 5, 10, 15 years that passes, we see students who have lived in a different different culture than students did 20 or 30 years ago. Right. So I'm sure that makes a difference too. Would, the, would a good percentage or the majority of the students coming from Christian backgrounds to, to your classes and to Campbellsville, would they come from complementarian traditions? Would they come from churches that don't traditionally ordain women? Yes, that is, that is, that's fair to say. Most of them do come from complementarian backgrounds. And there are a good number of students who don't, at Campbellsville, who don't come from a religious background at all. Right. Sometimes they will be more open-minded because they don't feel like they have to reconcile this Bible verse or that Bible verse, but sometimes they are as narrow-minded in their thinking as the others. They just don't have a Bible verse to go with it. <laughs> well, one of the things I appreciated, Susan, so much about the book is I, I was raised in a tradition that at its best is egalitarian that has ordained women from our inception and so in some ways, the theological battle is not ours, although even at the university where I teach, uh, the Nazarene University, we would have non-Nazarene students come, or even some Nazarene students come who would know this is who we are, but aren't real happy about this, you know, who we are. And I think a lot of that has to do with what you deal with primarily in the first third of the book, which is actually not so much the theological aspect, but as you recognize, so much of this is is the baggage of socialization and the ways in which we are socialized um, in gender. So you're essentially arguing that the absence of women in ministry is, is not just a theological problem, although we can talk about that too, Sure. but it's part of a broad intersection of social formation. And so talk a little bit about um, what happens early on in childhood with regards to how we experience uh, gender and how we experience socialization as as men and women? From early on, toys, expectations, even the clothes that we wear, um, certainly as we get a little older and our parents start giving us little chores and tasks to do around the house, so much of that, the books that we're read, the TV shows that we are exposed to, all of that make such an impact. And I would argue that that is some of the more dangerous, um, some of the more dangerous factors, I guess you could say, because of the fact that it's so subtle that it goes unnoticed. Hmm. We don't think about the fact that even the way we're talking to our daughters and the way we're talking to our sons and the use of the generic he or him when we talk about groups of people or the fairy tale that has the damsel in distress and the handsome hero who's saving the day, even teaching our daughters to want to be a princess 
Um, all of that seems so harmless. And yet what it communicates to little girls is that you are the sideline pretty fixture, fixture for a man's world. And I think that it's very dangerous. And I have students, when we talk about this in class, they'll say, well, did, did you ever read fairy tales to your children? <laughs> you know, I did. Um, I question the wisdom of it. But I did at a time or two, I remember closing the book and not finishing it because it got to me so much. I remember one time I was reading a, a Snow White to my daughter. She was like preschool. And every time the dwarfs would do something, it said, um, you know, the dwarf did this as he knew to do. And then every time Snow White did something, it said Snow White did such and such as she had been taught to do. And even that was such a subtle way of saying men know, but women have to be taught. And even that, and finally, I closed the book and I told my daughter, I said, we're not reading this. And so we read something else. But. Yeah. Can you give some examples, uh, Susan, of ways, even you have a section. I, so I have four children and uh, my oldest three are, are boys. So we, we finally got it right and had a daughter at the end. But, um, <laughs> right. but I thought often about even raising sons, mm-hmm. that issues around parenting um or i joke um my kids were in sports but because they had my dna i knew that was they were going to probably be better at art and academics and those kinds of things and so even some of the ways that we think about what it means to be masculine or feminine mm-hmm. uh, talk a little bit about ways that maybe for parents listening <laughs> ways we can help our kids not not be so captured imaginatively uh, in ways that we've tended to socialize men and women? Yeah, I think that um, very often it's just a matter of making a lot of options possible for them. Mm-hmm. And if we watch, you know, the language we use about gender and the TV shows that we expose them to the books and, and so on, if we do that and then make a lot of different hobbies and um, interest activities available to them, I think that goes a long way. Um, You know, like for instance, our son never really liked sports a whole lot. Mm -hmm. And we, a lot of his friends were were participating in sports and every time there was a sign up that came around, um, we would ask him if he wanted, but he didn't want to, so we didn't push it. Um, Same thing, we asked our daughter, well, Our daughter didn't particularly like sports either. They both, however, were very interested in music and drama um, at their different levels of schooling. And so we tried to make a variety of toys, a variety of books, a variety of activities within the realm of their possibilities so that then we could see what they naturally gravitated toward. And when our son didn't like sports, we didn't make an issue of it. And our daughter was really good with music. She didn't want to stay with it particularly. Our son did. So even though there was a part of me that really wanted her to stick with piano, and but she didn't want to. And so we tried to just allow that to be what it was. 
don't know if that answered your question or not. Yeah. No, it did. And because it it is, there have been times in parenting where I've had to assure my kids and even of the four of my children, the most athletic actually is our daughter. And yeah. and to say that that doesn't make you less a woman to be, sure. to excel there. It doesn't make my sons any less male uh, to be driven to be really good at art and and drama and music and those kinds of things. Um, but I've also, you know, even reading your book, it it resonated with things that I've struggled with as a parent. So much of my socialization, and it and I I I love that you say this isn't anybody's fault. In some ways, my grandparents and parents were also being socialized and shaped, but I felt, I feel like so much of the way I've judged my life as a father has been on my ability to provide for my wife and children, but that's largely meant then my imagination has been, then I leave and I'm separate and disconnected emotionally and not a good, um, not good at the nurturing aspect, right? And and in some ways, that's that also, in retrospect, has limited then my wife's ability to to go outside and to expand uh, her giftedness outside the home. And but I and I thought, you know, I'm a pretty hip guy, and like I'm an academic, like I get this. But I realize how deeply those imaginations have shaped my own life, and 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 beyond just grieving, you know. Uh, grieving the ways that's impacted my wife. It's also a sense of I've missed out on a lot of connectedness right. and in uh, development as a nurturer and carer in uh, caring with my kids uh, because of the social Im- imagination I've carried of what it means to be a good dad. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and see, I think that's it right there is that even among people who know better, And, you know, we could cite the research and we know that ideally it should be this and this. And we know that a man's worth is not contingent upon how much money he makes. And a woman's worth isn't contingent upon is she super mom or not. Even though we know that, we have all been shaped and I've been shaped. And I have to I have to remind myself that if I had to miss for instance, something that my children did because I had to work late one evening. That didn't make me any less of a mom. Mm. And so I think you're right. I think that for us to realize that there is inherently something about a woman that means that she has to be able to cook well and run their her children around to various events and be there their main cheerleader and and all that. And there's nothing inherently about a man that means that he has to make X amount of dollars every year. Um, Boy, there's still that deeply ingrained idea that, that somehow we do, you know, and it's really dangerous. And I, and I found myself falling for that many times as well. I used to joke whenever we first married, my husband would get home before I did, just because of our schedules, I wouldn't get home until a little after five. He usually got home about three or three thirty. When I would come in and he would have dinner started, I remember feeling a little bit like somehow I had failed. Hmm. And 
I would go to work and I would talk to the other women at my office and I'd say, oh, I just feel so bad because he started dinner. And they would laugh at me. They would say, look, <laughs> you don't know. You've not been married long enough to know this, but this is a good thing. And looking back at it now, I know what it was. It was that my mother always did dinner, always. But my mother was at home before my dad was at home. And it made sense for her to start dinner. But it was just something. And even at the time, even though I knew where they had come from and that it wasn't right, I still had to battle it. I had to I had to work at not giving in to that. Yeah. Well, and one of the things I appreciate, Susan, about the book is that it's not, I think the challenge sometimes has been the the goal then, or what we hear is the way to fix this is to to everybody embody this the sort of stereotypical disconnected masculine aspect. So everybody leaves and, and rather than recognize, no, like having children is also a call then to, to share nurturing responsibilities, to share discipline responsibilities, to share. Right. And, and so recognizing um, we're going to have to have real hard conversations about, about how to navigate two careers and about how to navigate the nurture of our children and how to navigate, you know, presence. Um, so we can't all be absent, right? Exactly. And, you know, I think that there are honestly some women who being at home and not having employment outside, that is exactly what they're called to do. Right. Mm -hmm. I just think that there are also a good many men that are probably called to that too mm -hmm. and afraid to embrace it. And I think there are plenty of men and women that are called to be outside the home doing whatever it is, you know, that God is wanting them to do. Um, and if we would all just follow that call and who we are and who God wants us to be and work that out with our spouses and our children, I just think that we would find that when people are working out of their strengths, they're better at everything they do. And mm -hmm. so. I just think we limit ourselves so much when we think it has to be a certain way. Right. So moving away from children, uh, all four of my children are now in their twenties and I'm so thankful to not have a teenager anymore, but cause your chapter on adolescence, uh, reminded me of some things I knew, but also terrified me of the challenges of socialization of adolescence. So talk about how, uh, gender socialization changes just a little bit. Uh, from from childhood into adolescence? With adolescence, they have the same socialization that they've always had. But we now see this child that has, has reached their teen years. And now some of that is ingrained. They are, they are already living out some of what they've been taught. And added to that, they're now having to navigate what it means to be not just a girl and a boy, but becoming a young woman and becoming a young man. And unfortunately, that means very different things for boys and girls. Um, girls during the teen years start becoming sexualized by society in ways that they have not been before. And while that's true some for boys and young men as well, it does have different ramifications for girls and young women. And add to that, that now they're getting this pressure 
to decide what they want to do career-wise and what will that mean in terms of their grades and how much participation they devote to a sport or other extracurricular activities and do they need to be a straight-A student or not? And what college, if they're going to go to college, where they go and what their requirements are going to be there. And so a lot of really important decisions are being made by the teenager and their parents, sometimes overtly, but a lot of times it will be unspoken that this one is going to continue to be a 4.0 because she's going to want to go to this school and have that career. And this one, not so much. He's probably not going to go to college. It's fine if he <laughs> focuses on, you know, whatever. So a lot of decisions are being made, some overtly, some not so much. But all of that is being made where they are still set right in the middle of the media and the books and the friends and the churches and the families that are trying to nudge them in this direction or that direction. And wow, it is complicated. It makes me glad that my children are grown too. <laughs> yeah, there's so much pressure, as you said, both those directions. Um, pretty yeah. early on, a sense of their a lot of their worth being connected to their potential for mm-hmm. achievement. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, uh, it's funny, uh, in a social media world, as you get through now, you know, we're in graduation season right now, but right before it was prom season. And, and, you know, I was one of those parents posting all the prom pictures, but even there, you get the sense that parents as we're posting that part of that is a sense of I've raised attractive children. And so even though I'm pushing against these social norms, I know are not really healthy at the same time, I'm kind of sexual, I, I'm, I'm sexualizing, or at least, oh. um, you know, recognizing there's this game of, of, is my child attractive, not just to the opposite sex, but relationally, friendship wise, um, there's just so much to navigate there. Yeah. And, and see, like you realize that, and I realize that and think about so many people who don't realize that at all. And so at least if we realize it, we have that capacity to stop and think about it and examine it and and make changes if we decide to, or if we don't make changes, at least it's a maybe a calculated decision. But but yeah, I think there are a lot of people though who just go through that and never even examine it. Yeah, and and trying to work at I, I do think this is the hard part as a parent, trying to work at counter narratives mm-hmm. that speak a different kind of value into their life as ultimate. Um while navigating all these other kinds of things too. How how does that, how does our our gendered socialization continue on into adulthood? So uh, certainly we need to pay close attention to to it in childhood and adolescence because that those are such formative years in the trajectory of our imagination. But it doesn't stop there, does it? No, it doesn't. Absolutely. And um several of the, the things that I comment on in the chapter on adulthood um, are really have such an impact. For instance, um, I talk in that chapter about the fact that young adults very often will think of what does it mean to be successful? And very often for a woman, 
it means that other people are giving us affirmation for what we've done. And that we know that that seems to be important to women, maybe a little more so than men, that, that somebody affirm what we're doing. And amazingly, and I was so shocked by this research, that men were gauging their success when they look at how well they're doing compared to others. And that to me, when I was aware of that whole line of research, it, it I think just made all of this come together for me, that if a young adult couple are going through life and making decisions about which one of us will work and which how much money are we going to make and which one of us is going to stay home if we have a child or if the child is sick or whatever, that you've got a man who a little more than a woman is wanting to know that he's done better than someone else. And you've got the woman who a little more than the man is looking for someone to say, wow, you did a good job. It doesn't make, it's not at all confusing then to see how this man as a provider making X number of dollars a year is going to look attractive to the man and the wife who is being told by her parents and her church and her maybe her spouse, her friends and so on, that staying home with that child and don't worry about career, this is the most important thing you can do. How that's going to have a pull for her, because the more she does that, the more she's going to be affirmed. When I read that, I thought there is nothing except what we have right now that could possibly come from this. I mean, and I, I guess that's an overstatement, but our whole culture and families seem to be a process of all of this playing out so strongly to the point where people just conclude that, oh, well, it must just be the natural order of things without realizing that it isn't necessarily the natural order of things. It's what our culture has designed and created. Hmm. That hmm. just blew me away whenever I, I saw the research on that. I thought that was really, um, and I was surprised that nobody else had made that connection, frankly. Right. There's still a lot to come in my conversation with Susan. However, I want to take just a moment and encourage you to get connected to her book, Buried Talents, Overcoming Gendered Socialization to Answer God's Call, a book published by IVP Academic. The book's available on Amazon in both paperback and electronic or Kindle forms, or you can order the book directly from IVP's website. It is not only a great resource for young women, but also for church leaders, for parents, for grandparents, really for anybody who mentors young adults. If you are a regular listener and are enjoying these podcasts, do us a favor, go to the podcast page on whatever podcast service you use and leave us a rating and maybe even a review. In the cyber world of analytics, that will help other people find us. I'm having so much fun with these conversations and thankful for so many of you who join us each week. So now let me get back to my conversation with Dr. Susan Howell. In the center of the book, so you, you spend the first third to half talking about ways socialization happens but then kind of in the center of the book you you use sarah and michael these two imaginary young people as examples of ways very 
very stereotypically, but very typically the way mm-hmm. that impacts um, both young women and young men. So talk a little bit more, Susan, about what what are the kind of typical ways, and I think you were just mentioning some of them, but what are some of the typical ways that that, that has impact both on, on men and women? Well, those two fictional characters, they are fictional, but I have seen that more times than I can count. Um, students who come to my office where they they will say to me, well, we're not doing this just because, you know, he's a man and I'm a woman, but he's been encouraged and we feel like God is calling him. And so we're going to do this. And then I'm not really sure yet. And we kind of want to have children. So we think that probably I'll just stay home and, and, and do that while he is getting his career off the ground. And they all say it like, it has nothing to do with being a man or a woman, that it has everything to do with something that's so unique in their situation. Mm-hmm. And yet I'm seeing it and I have seen it for, um, I've been teaching for almost 30 years now. And I've seen this solid for 30 years. Um, and every couple seems to think that they're not doing it just because he's a man and she's a woman, but rather it's some unique thing that has just popped up for them. And it's a pattern. It's a pattern. And so uh, that's one thing that I wanted to show with those two chapters is that what we're talking about here does result in something that is a very common way that relationships are navigated, that he has been encouraged all these years. He has been talked to as someone who has potential. God has a plan for him. He needs to meet that and that it will necessarily involve being out there in the world and making a living so that the woman doesn't have to and so that the children will be well provided for and that all of her socialization has taught her that you have talents, but none of them are as important as raising a child. And that regardless of what you believe God is asking you to do, God is asking you to be at home and to take care of children and to put whatever dreams you had on hold. Mm. And as many students as I see who are in the planning stages of their careers, once they find someone to marry, no, I can't say all the time, but in the vast majority of the cases, it's the woman who stops and puts hers on hold. Yeah. A man who, rather than stopping or even putting his on hold, almost seems to speed his up because he's got to get to that point where he's making a good living because he wants to get married. Um, I have never, and I had said this in the book, I've never once in 30 years had a male student in my office say, gee, I have wanted this for so long, but since I want to get married, I guess I just am not going to be able to do it. Hmm. I, have, I have never had that. If anything, they seem to be speeding their plans up. But for women, they I never have to see a woman who's speeding her plans up with career because she wants to get married. Mm. For her, it's almost always 
that she's slowing it down or even tossing it out the window entirely. Mm-hmm. And, and like I say, typically they will say it as if, wow, who would have thought, but we're going to do it this way, not realizing that they're doing it the way that they have been trained to do it. Mm-hmm. So, so, so much of this is, <laughs> is deeply ingrained. And this is, uh, culturally, especially within the church, this is a long journey in the same direction. So where do, Susan, where do we start? Um, give us some, you know, you spend the last third of the book really giving some helpful practical suggestions for ways, where, where do we begin this journey? Right. You know, whenever I started working on the last part of the book, my fear was that I wouldn't be able to bring anything to the table that was new or fresh. And then I started noticing that so much research that has uncovered the things I talked about in the first part of the book, toward the end of the articles, whenever they go into a discussion or, or what is already being done, so many of those articles have really good suggestions. And sometimes they would even bring in programs that have been already put into place in communities and schools and churches and so on, neighborhoods and so on. And so what I started doing was looking through the research to see what's out there, what's already being done, even in just a real small way. And I I started realizing that there was a whole lot. But I think what's happening is that whenever a researcher who finishes up their article with the discussion that says, oh, and by the way, there are some programs here that are trying to address this. I think that maybe we're not spending enough time looking at that. Um, And and I understand that Um, I do research, too. And a lot of times when you're doing research and publishing an article, you want to find the answer to that research question. And you don't have a whole lot of time to look at what programs are out there that are already being done that can help with this. And so when I got to the last part of the book, I just started making that my business to look at what is already being done. And I found a lot of things, you know, there are programs in schools, everything from career education to helping young girls, especially, especially in neighborhoods where they don't feel like they have as many opportunities. Having people come into those schools, adult women who are of the same race, ethnic background, socioeconomic status, and they have made it, they have succeeded. Those are some wonderful programs. Um, And looking at it on a smaller scale to be very intentional, for parents to be very intentional about the churches that they raise their children in and the people that they introduce their children to. You have a daughter who thinks that it would be cool to be, uh, for for instance, a scientist, an astronaut, if math is her thing, Mm. find adult women who are in careers that make use of science and math and make sure your child is introduced to that person. Make sure that they are given books, articles, television shows where that highlight the advances that women have made. And I read in one article, I wish I could remember to give credit where credit's due, but there was one article where it said 
find the exception to the rule and broadcast it widely. And I thought that right there, I think, is what parents need to do and what ministers need to do and teachers is find those exceptions and make sure that the girls in your life know those exceptions. If possible, introduce them to the person, buy them the books, read them the articles, show them the documentaries, make sure that they are very well aware that not every woman in the world is doing what the women in their one neighborhood are doing. And I just think that that would be phenomenally successful if we could do that. And even bringing in those women to speak at church. Mm. Uh, If the church is willing for a woman to come and give a sermon or to come and have a weekend where she highlights how she uses her gifts in God's kingdom. That could be a tremendous asset to not just the little girls in the church, but the little boys too. Um, So I try to, um, and as you know, since you've read the book, I try to divide that into things we can do as individuals with the little girls in our lives or the friends of ours who are thinking about a career move, um, both male and female. And then I go into a section where I look at what we can do in our local schools, in our churches, in our neighborhoods and communities. Um, Because I think it's important that regardless if if we have a child in school anymore, that we still stay connected to what our schools are doing and offer to take part, offer to host a career day or to bring in women that you know who are doing some fabulous things so that the girls in your community can see this. So I, I just think it's really important that we stay active, that we do a lot of introducing whether it's an actual person or a book or a TV show or whatever. Hmm. Say a little bit about language that may be uh, a little bit unfamiliar to some people. I I think it was probably (laughs) about 11 or 12 years ago, I was teaching a course and a young woman raised her hand and said, "Uh, Dr. Daniels, what you just said is kind of a microaggression. I remember thinking, what? Um, (laughs) So, uh, and uh, and now I'm very familiar with that language of both micro and macro aggressions, and and uh, increasingly sensitive and aware of of right. ways, especially the use of language can form uh, various microaggressions. But for people unfamiliar with that language, you have a chapter about that related to gender. So just say a word about micro yeah. and macro aggressions. Right. Well, um, I think. Like you said, the micro, that it's so hard to even realize when we've done that. A few years ago, and I guess this would qualify, a few years ago, I read an article that said, you know, have you ever noticed that when you talk to a little girl, you comment how she looks? Mm. And we don't tend to do that with little boys. We do some, you know, but but not as lot. And so I told myself I was not going to do that, but with the little girls at church, um, not make everything I talk about, about the pretty bow that was in her hair or the dress or how nice she looked or, oh, why you've lost some weight or, mm-hmm. oh, did you do your hair differently? Whatever. I don't know if that really would be considered a microaggression, but, but it might because I think what we're doing is we're communicating to that little girl 
that her looks are much more important than what she learned at school this week or Mm. what her favorite book is or what kind of music she's listening to. So I started trying to do that. And I found that it was really hard because Mm. even though I certainly thought that I was beyond this, I evidently wasn't because I had a hard time coming up with something that didn't have to do with the pretty outfit or the nice hair. Right. And, and so I, you know, it, I'm saying it's really hard Mm -hmm. and, but I am making the effort and I, I know what you said there about like a student saying it's a microaggression. Wow, that just makes us feel awful, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it did. Yeah, it made me, well, yeah, truthfully, it made me defensive at first. And then I, I stepped yeah. back and realized, oh no, actually the student's yeah. partly right. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tell her that she's partly right, but yes, no. Uh, yeah, exactly. Or like whenever we wrote an article once and my husband and I wrote it together, but I had put more work into it. And so my name came first. And when we sent it into the publication, they changed it to my husband's name first. And, you know, I guess you could say, well, that was a microaggression too, maybe. And it, and it probably, you know, it, it, it felt like it. My husband was like, oh my gosh, why did they do that? And we told them about it and it hadn't gone to press yet. And they corrected it. But I have no doubt that there was no intent on the part of those people to do that. It's just that that's the way it's done almost always. Um, They weren't intentionally. It wasn't intentional at all. In fact, they laughed about it. I laughed about it. I knew that they are just as much a product of our culture as you are, as I am. Yeah, we had a funny thing happen just recently. My uh, my staff uh, realized that I noticed it in the moment too, but I thought it was funny. They all noticed it as well. We we will often have what we call new friends luncheons where we'll invite people who are new to the church to meet the staff. And I'm usually pretty good there about saying, hey, I, I would love for one member of the family. And I've even started to say it doesn't have to, it could be one of the children to introduce the family or, you know, uh, one of the, either parent or whoever introduce you know, your family to us. And I try to encourage it to be different people, but we took in new members on Easter Sunday and, and had uh, a bunch. And I just passed the mic down and said, you know, if you're joining by yourself, introduce yourself, but you're, if you're joining as a family, have one, somebody introduce the family, but we know the, the, husband of each family passed the mic on to the next person. And and in every single family situation was the dad who entered the father or the patriarch who introduced the whole family. And afterwards the staff was like, Oh man, that drove me crazy. They just automatically passed the mic to the, yeah. To the next patriarch. Um, exactly. I know. Yeah. And we, you know, we've found that my husband and I, we try to do things very differently than the norm. And partly just because, it works for us, but also because we like to raise awareness and we have at different times when we've been out in public, um, just done what comes naturally to us. And, and like, for instance, I remember going to a family get together one time, we were meeting at a restaurant after church, my husband and I got there later and there was a table, there was a chair at the end of the table that was open and then a chair next to it without even thinking about it. I sit down at the end. And somebody said, oh, Susan's sitting at the head of the table. (laughs) And there for a second, then I thought, oh, my, I really, that was a social gap. And then I thought, why shouldn't, what is it about the head of the table that makes that 
you know, and I don't remember. I have to ask my husband if he remembers because we've laughed about it for years. I don't remember if I got up and let him have that chair. Or <laughs> if I, stayed. I have a hunch that I stayed because I kind of enjoy letting people know that the way they think it has to be done is not the way it has to be done. But, right. but right. I, 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 and I don't know if that's how microaggressions are defined. But I do believe that it is a microaggression. The idea that you're a woman, you can't sit at the head. You're not quite important enough to sit at the head of the table. Mm-hmm. I, I do think that's a microaggression. Right. Right. So, you know, theologically in our, in the tradition I'm a part of, uh, in, in some ways, because we came out of the really Holy Spirit Pentecostal kinds of revivals in the late. 1800s, early 1900s. In some ways, I blame Peter or give Peter credit when he preaches in Acts mm-hmm. um, the, from Joel that in the last days, uh, the spirit will be poured out on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy that in some ways, our, this tradition ordained women in some, in some sense that the new creation, you know, the name of this podcast, the new creation had, had entered in. We're in the last days. Uh, we should expect that women prophesy. And, and I, I do think then out of that tradition, we begin to recognize some of the things that you recognize in the book as well, that there's, even in the Old Testament, this highly patriarchal culture, there's some really subversive narratives like Ruth and Naomi and some, and a number of women who um, from a 21st century perspective still may not seem fully egalitarian, but, uh, but at least are incredibly subversive narratives in the in the midst of highly patriarchal culture, and then even dealing with some of the negative texts in the in the New Testament, I think we would recognize come in a context where prior to the resurrection of Jesus and and the formation of the early church, women were excluded from worship, but now there's issues of disruption, and so um, I think we would often say that it's clear to us the trajectory of the scripture is towards egalitarianism, and that. Um, there may be some negative texts to deal with, but if you affirm those negative texts as, as the way things should be, you would have to ignore a bunch of positive texts uh, that seem to affirm this movement towards egalitarianism. Um, and that when we, when we codify um, a separation of the genders, especially with regards to ministry, it feels like, and headship and those kinds of things, it feels like we are affirming the, the results of the fall and not the, the expectations of redemption. Um, but anything, you know, that was a lot there, but is there anything, Susan, you would add there, especially f- from a theological imagination, ways that we need to think about, uh, allow our theological imagination to be shaped in these ways also? I think what you said there is so important that if you make those very few verses the the ideal, then we do. We have to do a whole lot of um, of um, we have to go into a lot of denial about, about all the messages of freedom that, that the text provides us. Um, I tell my students that I don't have a problem at all with Paul wanting women to be silent at a time when women weren't allowed to become educated. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tell my students when I'm teaching a class of 20-year-old college students about something in psychology, I'm the only one in the room that has a doctorate in the subject. 
So who should be the one teacher? <laughs> who knows, you know? Right. So I say I don't take offense that Paul wanted whoever was doing the speaking to be somebody who had been mm. educated. I think that makes all the sense in the world. Mm. But it, it just shouldn't it shouldn't be that way in today when women duty, right? Sure. And and what I tell my students is somewhere down the line, if we're in a group of people and you have the most education about whatever the topic is at hand, I should sit down and be quiet and let you have the floor. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I just think that we need to be able to read it in context. Sure. That's a wonderful point. Yeah. There's just a few minutes left in my conversation with Susan, but let me take a moment and share a couple of unique opportunities with you. My guess is that many of you who listen to this podcast on a regular basis may be interested in exploring a deeper level of theological conversation and training. I get the blessing of teaching in two programs that I feel very good about, and I would encourage you to consider either one if you're thinking about pursuing theological education. This fall, I'm teaching a course entitled The Life and Theology of John Wesley for Nazarene Theological Seminary. The course has no prerequisites, so if you're thinking about theological education, especially theology in the Wesleyan tradition, this might be a wonderful place to start. One of the unique things about the programs at NTS is that they combine both online and in-person components into their coursework, so if that's the kind of program that might interest you, I'd encourage you to check out their webpage at nts.edu. Of course, I also teach in the graduate and undergraduate programs of Northwest Nazarene University. Each January, I teach a graduate course in preaching for NNU, and I'd love to have the chance to interact with some of you about not only how to understand the Word of God well, but also how to proclaim it in ways that bring transformation into the lives of others. One of the benefits of NNU's graduate program is that it's fully online, so if being fully online is a better fit for you, I'd encourage you to check out the graduate program at nnu.edu. Join me for next week's conversation with Dr. Mark Baker about his new book, Centered Set Church, Discipleship and Community Without Judgment. It's a great book, and in a time of such incredible division in the church, I found the book not only encouraging, but also a helpful resource and a much-needed conversation. As always, if you haven't done it yet, like our Facebook page at New Creation Conversations so we can keep in touch with you. And if you're looking for great resources for life and faith from a Wesleyan perspective, be sure and peruse the great material available from our friends at thefoundrypublishing.com. Thanks for your desire to keep growing in faith. Here is the end of my conversation with Dr. Susan Howell. So let's cause a little trouble before we get uh, to some last questions. But, you know, this week has a lot of the news, uh, you know, obviously today uh, when we're having this conversation, the tragedy that's happened in Texas has kind of dominated the news. But there's been a lot in the news about um, ugly scandals within the church and uh, um, a lot of it related to to sexual abuse and gender. And let me pose the question by saying, first of all, uh, it was funny. Early on in ministry, I found myself oftentimes on boards where there were either very few women there or maybe just one or two. And I, I remember as a young person coming home to my to my wife and, and she would ask, what'd you guys decide? And I would say, well, this is what we decided. And she goes, what in the world were you guys not even thinking about? And I realized, oh, this is dangerous having a whole bunch of men in the room. We, we cannot keep doing this. <laughs> and so for a lot of reasons, and intentionally the last decade or two, uh, having a lot of representation of both men and women on board and, and women oftentimes at the head of the table leading those discussions, 
I have found, man, we make such health, such better decisions and healthier decisions with that representation. Um, it, not just in gender, but also in age group and, and all sorts of ways of, of representing multiplicity and diversity. But um, I, I can't help but wonder if some of the ugliness of the scandal is certainly sinfulness and brokenness, but in a tradition in particular that, it, that has affirmed complementarianism and has been so male-dominated, if some of the repercussions of this is actually an implication of, of having of failing to, to recognize women's voices within it. I absolutely believe that that is at the heart of it. I think that anytime you have an organization or a culture that says, you know, men are supposed to be the head, men are supposed to be leading. Um, and then later, lo and behold, we find that there has been abuse of that. I don't know how we could not have abuse of it if that is going to be the, um, if that's going to be the standard that we have. I, I, I think that it absolutely comes from the fact that Southern Baptist, and I and I have been Southern Baptist for most of my adult life. Um, Southern Baptists are very complementarian, and I know some Southern Baptists who say they're egalitarian, but they're like, well, women and men are equal except for, and then they, you know, go about talking about being complementarian. Right. Um, so, I, so yeah, that that is there, but I don't think that we can have any organization where men are given leadership purely because they're a man. And then whenever there is an abuse of that in any form, I don't think we can be surprised. Mm. I think that is just the consequences of it. I think that we, it's not a failure of complementarianism. It is the logical outcome mm. of complementarianism for there to be abuse and frankly, for it to be covered up. Yes. So it's not surprising at all. I just hope that Southern Baptists will learn from it. Will they? I do not know. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll let you speak for your part of the tradition. I We have our own issues there too, but I do think um, leaning into who we are, at least in this, this part of uh, our tradition, helps us. It doesn't free us from those situations and those moments of abuse. Um, but hopefully it, it allows us to be able to deal with that more transparently and, and with, with wisdom and sensitivity that oftentimes when that isn't there, um, doesn't happen. Right. For women to be able to, um, if they, if it's an organization where a woman is given as much credit, as much respect, as much right to voice who she is and what's going on, you're, I believe, going to find less abuse, or when there is abuse, you're going to find less cover-up. Um, but I think that anytime when we tell a group of people that your voice is not as important as someone else's, well, how can we expect there not to be abuse? Hmm. Hmm. Susan, what do you hope people receive from the book? Um, you know, I, what Who's the audience primarily that, that yeah. you had in mind as you wrote it? Most, um, for the most part, what I had in mind are young women who are thinking about what direction their life will go and who do I want to surround myself with? 
What am I called to do? And taking that seriously. Um, but also, as I wrote it, I began to realize that it was also going to be for parents who want to do what they can to ensure that their sons and daughters are treated fairly and that their sons and daughters and nieces and nephews and grandchildren grow up in a culture that is better than it has been in the past. But also, as I got toward the end of the book and started writing about things we can do, what I really hope is that pastors, leaders of churches will read this book and realize that they need to do some things actively, make changes within their church, their organization, so that women who are there and little girls that are there will have a different experience than what women have in the past. Mm-hmm. So that's what I hope. That's what I hope that we, people will start paying attention and changing their world to the extent that they can. Yeah, wonderful. So I know that you have uh, a website, susanharrishowell.com, yes. uh, where people can get connected to you and to some some of the places. Uh, thanks for including uh, this. I, I saw this morning. Thanks for including this conversation <laughs> yes. on their website. Right. Um, yeah. Are there other ways, though, that <clears throat> in addition to ordering the book, that people can connect to this conversation or connect with you in this conversation? I absolutely love talking with people about this. Students, <laughs> goodness, for somebody to read something I've written and talk, that is like the best thing ever. So I would really encourage anyone to check out the website, um, susanharrishowell.com, as you mentioned. And my socials are on there. People can connect with me through Facebook and Twitter. And um, I just would love an email too. All of that is on my website. And I would really appreciate anyone who reads this and just wants to, to talk about it, to connect with me in one of those ways. I would love to have a conversation. That's great. Well, I have a kind of traditional question that I, I've asked each of uh, each of the folks I've had a chance to have a conversation with over the last year and a half or so. And that is, as you do this work, I know that it's challenging and I know that Sometimes it can feel like one step forward and two steps back. But um, what's giving you hope, Susan, as as you do this work and as you teach students and as you encourage especially young women um, to explore ministry and other opportunities in their life? What's giving you hope? What gives me hope is that I consistently, all the time, hear from students who have taken my gender studies course and have sat in lectures similar to what you read in the book. And, and are reading the book now and tell me that their lives are changed because of it. When I see that there are people who really do want to learn and want to grow and to make the world better than it has been, that is so encouraging. I heard from a student actually just the other day who said that when she took gender studies and started learning some of this, that it started helping her to realize that her adulthood could be different than her mother's or grandmother's and that she and her husband have chosen to do things differently. I think her husband is right now a stay-at-home dad and that she is going out and working just because that's what works best for them. And she said, I wouldn't have even thought of that as a possibility had I not taken the gender studies class and started realizing that so much of this is cultural, but we can do things differently depending on what God is wanting from us. And that it, that right there 
is like, oh, I can, I can take that and live off of that for like <laughs> five years. <laughs> those, those are the good emails. Yeah. Those are, yeah, they're wonderful. Well, thanks, Susan. Uh, the book is Buried Talents, Overcoming Gendered Socialization to Answer God's Call, published by IVP Academic. Susan, wonderful to meet you. I'm so glad that you got stuck with that gender studies course uh, two decades ago. And uh, and God has used that to, to bring out this book and, and to further this, this really helpful conversation in people's lives. Thank you so much. I really love the chance to talk about it, and I've enjoyed this time. Thanks. Thanks, Susan. Thanks for joining us for New Creation Conversations. This podcast is an extension of the ministry of Napa College Church, New Creation Community Middleton, and New Creation Community Online. Connect with us by liking the Facebook pages of Napa College Church and New Creation Conversations. You can subscribe to the podcast through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or other podcast services. If you like what you hear, help us reach out to others by sharing it with someone or leaving us a rating. Our music is a song called Sunny, provided by bensound.com. Our new season two artwork was beautifully done by Carrie Daniels. To connect to the word and prayer daily, download our new podcast, New Creation Common Prayer. For great resources for life and faith from a Wesleyan perspective, check out our friends at thefoundrypublishing.com. New podcast episodes are available each Wednesday. Thanks for helping me keep the church and the academy connected. Now go in Christ's peace.